listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Good to have you back on the NBA Beat with us, and a warm welcome to our new listeners, whether you're finding us on Dash Radio or anywhere else. I'm Aaron Fishman, joined by my usual basketball-crazy co-hosts. It is playoff time. And if you can't hear it in my voice, and I know you can't see it in my face, then you'll have to take my word for it. The NBA playoffs are the best time of the year. In that spirit, we have the eloquent Los Angeles-based ESPN NBA writer and editor, Yovan Buha, on the show. As a sophomore at USC, thanks to a roommate and a fortuitous sequence of events, Yovan ended up partying at Drake's house in the Hidden Hills-gated community of Los Angeles. He had class at 9am the next morning, but was in no way going to pass up such a rare life opportunity. But back to basketball. Yovan will help us preview the upcoming 4-5 matchup between the LA Clippers and the Utah Jazz. He'll also go deep into what's caused the Clippers' recent history of postseason disappointment and if those issues have ever truly been solved. Los Angeles began the year 14-2, suffered a subpar 26-27 stretch as it was beset by key injury after key injury, and then finished the regular season on an 11-2 tear just sneaking into that coveted number four seed that comes with home court advantage. Without further ado, let's get Jovan on the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for fitting us in around the Lakers exit interviews today. I know it's kind of a busy time. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. No, it's really good to have you on. And I have to start with this. I know that it's highly unlikely that Chris Paul and Blake Griffin will leave. They can opt out of their contracts and are expected to, but to remain with the team. J.J. Redick is an unrestricted free agent. So everything could be blown up. Whether or not the players will admit it or not, and they probably won't, there's mounting pressure around them to succeed just because of how disappointing their uh, playoff level of success has been with this core. It could just all be gone. Given that... To what extent do you think that pressure could actually be used as a galvanizing force? Uh, I really don't know, you know, to try and put a percentage on it. Um, it Because it's, it's just so daunting that they have to face the Warriors in the second round. Um, I was personally a big proponent of them dropping to number six or number seven, just because obviously I think they'd have a better shot at beating Utah in the first round than Houston or San Antonio. But I, I kind of view that as like, okay, maybe you have a 60-65% chance of beating the Jazz in the first round. But then you go up against the Warriors and you have what, like maybe a 10% chance? I think like, you know, I, I would really not give them more than like a 10-15% to 15% chance of beating the Warriors. Mm-hmm. And that could be high. Versus playing the, the Spurs and Rockets where maybe you have like a 40% chance of beating either one of those teams without home court. You know, and maybe it goes to 50-50 if you're playing your best. But uh, I think that is a little more realistic than having to face the Warriors. So I definitely think it'll be a, a factor against Utah. I think the Clippers, um, you know, I've, I've been trying to decide how many games I think they're going to win in. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm in between five and six. But it, it's weird because with this team, they never make it easy in the playoffs. You know, so never. since Chris has been there, they've never won a series in less than seven games. So it's going to be interesting to see if they could actually close out the jazz in five games or in six games, or, you know, if this goes the distance and then at that point, you know, you're a 40 point Gordon Hayward game away from, you know, potentially losing and being upset on your home, on your home floor. So I think it'll be a factor with the jazz. And I think their MO this series is really just going to be to put it to bed as, as quickly as possible. But against golden state, you can have all the motivation in the world, but that team's just so talented that, I don't know if it really, you know, matters. Yeah. 
Those are some good points. We'll get more into the matchup with Golden State, potential matchup a little bit later. But I think it's interesting because if they're bounced from the first round, then everything that's expected, for instance, Paul and Griffin re-signing could be thrown out the window, potentially. That would just be disastrous. But even though the Warriors draw in the semifinals would not be a good one, I think a lot of people would understand just for keeping the core together if they lost to the Warriors, a historically great team, just because of how the brackets were and given those big injuries during the year to Paul and Griffin. But just getting to the next question, I know you're well aware of the recent postseason meltdowns by the Clippers, but I'll just provide a little bit of context for the listener. So three postseasons ago, they had that seven-game series against the Warriors. They emerged victorious. But then in the second round, in Oklahoma City, Game 5, they were up seven with 44 seconds left. Chris Paul mishandled the ball in the backcourt. Just a brutal meltdown against them. The following year, after that epic seven-game series that they defeated the Spurs, they blew the 3-1 lead to the Rockets. They had that huge letdown on their home court at Staples. And then last year, they were hit by a rash of key injuries against Portland that eliminated them in the first round. So basically, what I'm getting at is, is there a fatal flaw about this team that is causing this to happen? Or is it one of those things that pundits and the casual fan will just say, because they haven't gotten over the hump yet, they're not going to ever? I think it's a little bit of both. And I I hate to provide that type of cop-out answer. But I I do think there's a lot of context to the situation. I think even the one that I've seen floated around a couple times, but I I truly think people forget, you know, they had the Memphis series uh, the the year before in in 2013 where they had a 2-0 lead on Memphis. It looked like they were going to sweep them or, you know, win in five. And then they go back to Memphis, lose both games. Blake Griffin gets injured before game five at home. He like rolls his ankle on Lamar Odom's foot. Then they lose that game five at home in a close game. I think it, it went to overtime or, or was you know down to the last couple of possessions. Uh, and then they go back to Memphis and get destroyed. And that's the game. Like, um, you know, I remember like Zach Randolph like punched Blake. You know, Chris Paul got ejected at the end. And so I, <laughs> it's just it's crazy how really this team has flamed out in dramatic fashion every single, basically every single postseason um, besides maybe their first one when they got swept by the Spurs. I think there is a little bit of a mental makeup and I think it's, it's a little bit of a, a, you know, the chicken or the egg type thing with them where I feel like they got, you, you know, they got a lot of hype when, you know, Lob City and, you know, Chris Paul's here now and there's a lot of expectations on this team from the jump. And I think, you know, that first year they, they made the second round, got swept by the Spurs. And then that, that Memphis series, you know, they blew the 2-0 lead. And I think then they kind of started to have the, well, one of the Clippers is going to make a deep playoff run. You know, Chris Paul, he's such a good player, but he's, he's never made the conference finals. And that narrative started to be kind of built, I think, around 2013, 2014. And then once you kind of had that collapse uh, against the Thunder, I think that kind of cemented that in a lot of people's minds of, there's something wrong with this team. You know, they're flashy in the regular season. They have all these blowout wins and they're dunking on people and yada, yada. But when it comes to the playoffs, they can't win. And then I, I really think, obviously, the Rocket series was like the big one where now that just kind of falls, you know, that, that just falls around the, the, the Clippers wherever they do. Even the Sacramento Kings lost a couple of weeks ago. You know, they, they blow an 18-point lead in the last five minutes to, you know, the, the lowly Kings. And it comes back, oh, these are just the the same old Clippers. So I, I, I kind of want to say personally, I, I do think it's a little bit media driven. I think it's the, it's the cop out. It's the easy thing. It's much easier to say a team choke than kind of provide the context of it. But with that said, there really is no other way to frame the, the Thunder series and the Rocket series. Like I think, you know, both series, the Clippers should have won or uh, the Thunder series at least should have gone to seven. And I do think the Clippers choked in, in, in both instances but I don't think that necessarily is their identity. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, they, they should be kind of judged that way. Um, it's just kind of how it's it's worked out. But I, I do think that the, the media kind of narrative 
has gotten to them a little bit. And I, I do know that a lot of these guys pay attention to the media more than they let on. And mm-hmm. it does seem to, um, from my perspective, bother them a little bit more than they try to admit. I think you laid that out really well. Expectations were incredibly lofty and deservedly so. I mean, you look at the core that they have, that talent is just so immense, especially with the level that DeAndre Jordan has risen to. You add J.J. Redick into that mix. And you can point to a lot of different issues besides the ones you said even with just the front office not surrounding the starters with the requisite talent that they need. There are other ones too, but... I think unfairly so, Blake Griffin sometimes gets a lot of the flack, Chris Paul too, but moving on to this story uh, written about Blake Griffin by James Hollis, he's also known as Snotty Driven on Twitter of B-Ball Breakdown, he wrote an article called The Irrelevance of Blake Griffin, and I'm not sure how prevalent just around NBA circles and just casual fans this is, but... The article basically argues that the game has passed him by, Blake Griffin, that he hasn't evolved to the point that he's needed to. And it kind of pins a lot of the blame for the lack of postseason success on Griffin. From my perspective, he's grown every year in different ways. I'm curious to get your perspective on how his game has changed and if there's anything to that argument put forward in that article. Sorry, there was a train just passing me. Um, <laughs> but but I heard what you said. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I skimmed over it uh, before our conversation right now, and I like James. Uh, you know, we we follow each other. We we've had some good interactions on Twitter. So uh, nothing against him, but I couldn't disagree with that more. Look, I, I'll, I'll say I think Blake has. I would say he, he's kind of plateaued, uh, but I, I still think that in that. You know, I think there is this, um, I keep using the word narrative, but there's this perception, I guess, or, or misconception that he isn't the same player that he was or he's gotten worse, he's regressed. I, I don't agree with that. I think he, he's plateaued a little bit. I, I think he's he's been about the same level good for the past three years or so. And I would still say that's top 15, if not top 10 player in the league. But um, I, I think the the improvements he's made are very subtle and you have to be a either a fan of the team or around the team or, or really closely watching the team to notice them like defensively Blake Griffin now compared to three years ago is night and day like before he was legitimately a bad defender I think now he's honestly an average passable defender and at sometimes is a little bit slightly above average like he's still very athletic he has good foot speed he can, you know, he switch. He can switch out onto wings. He can guard guys like Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony in a pinch. He's a pretty solid pick and roll defender. Is he a good rim protector? No. Is he ever going to be? Probably not. He has short arms. But I, I, you know, I think people don't really ever talk about his his defensive improvement, which I think has has been very stark uh, over the past couple of years. Uh, offensively, look, he, he his athleticism has waned a bit he's written about it in the players tribune he's talked about it he's concerned with the long-term uh impact of of playing that type of basketball where you're always jumping and and dunking and sort of that that physical always you know a lot of in-air contact with him so i think he's kind of you know tweaked out a little bit isn't dunking as much isn't it as above the rim as, as much as he used to be but the guy i mean the guy the guy's still putting up like 22 eight and a half and five assists no one does that in the league right now. Like it's, it's, you know, it, I mean, obviously Harden and Westbrook and, and LeBron and Giannis, but like, look, look at the names. Three of those guys are MVP candidates and, and Giannis could be number five on, you know, the, the MVP ballot this year. So I don't know. Like, I, I think, yeah, he, he shoots more jumpers now, but he's also gotten a lot better at shooting. That's another thing. I don't think he really gets uh, enough credit for. I think he shot about two threes a game this year, shot like 33 and a half percent, which isn't great. It's below average, but, you know, from 18 to 23 feet, I think, he, you know, he's he's been in the, the mid to high 40s the last three years. He's a solid, good mid-range shooter. He, he's expanding to the three-point line now, but 
uh, you know, it's going to take another year or two, I think, for him to kind of be an actually good, consistent three-point shooter. But I don't know. I don't, I don't buy into it. The guy's 22, 8, and 5 the last three years. So if that's an irrelevant player, like, I, I don't know. It, it, to me, he, he's been a top 20 player consistently the last three years and, and honestly probably closer to top 10. So I think he's fine. I think he needs to be a little more aggressive at times, but that's a little bit of a different conversation. But uh, I think he's adjusted well. And if anything, if anything, he's he's probably tried to adjust too much to the, the way the league has changed and, and tried to become a stretch four and stuff. So I, I don't agree with the irrelevance comment. I want to talk a little bit more about that last point you brought up, how he's starting to add the three-pointer to his game a little bit more, moving back some of those long twos that he had been shooting in previous seasons. In March alone, he made more three-pointers than he had in any previous season. As you noted, he's still not necessarily that proficient, just shooting about 33% from three. But with that added dimension in his game, how does that change how opposing defenses game plan against the Clippers and have to think about guarding Blake? Well, it's interesting because I think the real truth behind it is that the core, I think as the league has shifted, there's been legitimate concerns and questions about can you have Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan as your two big men? And I would say, in my opinion, they're the best four or five combination in the league, unless you're going to, you, pro- you know, maybe put, I guess if you put KD and Draymond as like a four or five combination, I'd rather have those two. And if you put like LeBron and Kevin Love, I'd, I'd, maybe I'd take them. But in terms of true four or five, I think Blake and DJ are the best combination in the league. They have unparalleled athleticism. With that said, DeAndre Jordan famously cannot shoot past like three feet. So if you have him who can't shoot, and then you have a guy like Blake who, when you know at the beginning of his career, was much more comfortable within twelve to fourteen feet, there are some troubles offensively. And then you're throwing in another guy like Luke Mbamute, and Clippers have kind of rotated different threes, which we can get into that's been a ongoing problem as well they've never really had a great shooting three guy so you could have jj reddick who's one of the best shooters in the league and chris paul who's an underrated shooter but if your three front court guys can't shoot that's a big issue in today's game so i think blake griffin has almost adapted and started shooting more threes out of necessity because for him and dj to be able to play big minutes in the playoffs 32 35 minutes together on the on the court together one of them has to stretch the floor it's not going to be deandre jordan so I think the, the the weapon that Blake has added is now when you run those one-five pick-and-rolls with Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan, you have Blake Griffin stretching the floor now. And as a defender, you have to make that choice. Am I going to help on DJ or and leave Blake open? Or am I going to stick with Blake? And then you're giving DJ a lot more space to, to kind of operate. So I think that's kind of been the biggest reason why he's done that is just for him and DJ to play. One of them had to stretch the floor. And Blake has kind of become more of a stretch four lately. And then, like you said, I mean, it's just another it's just another weapon. Like he he takes a lot of long twos. And I think for him to take another step or two back and just start capitalizing on threes is a big development for his game. And what, what's interesting is that's it's been a story the past couple of preseasons. I think like 2015 and 2016 heading into the season, I was like, you know, Blake Griffin's going to start shooting threes more. He's shooting threes in preseason. But this was the first season that he actually did it consistently and finished with, um, I believe, like 1.9 attempts a game when he had never been higher than 0.9. So this was kind of the first year he actually put it in his game. And from everything Doc has said recently, it it seems like it's here to stay and he's only going to shoot more of them. The Clippers were able to secure home court in the first round against the Jazz by way of winning the tiebreak head-to-head matchup with them 3-1 this season. The Clippers have been clicking on all cylinders recently, but Utah's also playing fairly well too. How much do you weigh the importance of home court advantage in that first round series, and how do you think the Clippers match up with them? Well, I think home court's important generally in the playoffs. I think you know we can look at the you know, statistics and percentages of you know what it's like seventy nine percent of the time the home team wins Game Seven and stuff like that. So I definitely think it's a factor. What's funny is the Clippers might be one of the few teams where it's not really a factor because this team, to be honest, the Clippers don't have the best home court advantage. Um, I don't know if you, you I mean, I, I know some of you guys have been to Stable Center before, but like you go to a Clippers game, it's not the loudest crowd. It's not the most active or engaged crowd. 
So there's, this isn't Oracle. This isn't Oklahoma City. This isn't Utah. This isn't Portland. So I wouldn't say they have like this imposing home court advantage. With that said, obviously, it's always nice to play at home. This team, I guess they, they won game seven in Memphis. But besides that, the, the other two series they won, they had game seven at home. Uh, I think they would have won the Houston series had they had game seven at home. So I definitely think it's important for them. With that said, they have proven that they can win big games on the road. They did win that game seven in Memphis. They won two road games in San Antonio in the Spurs series. And this team has has even kind of said over the past couple of years that they sometimes prefer playing on the road. And, and I think they, they backed that up. They had a big win, um, you know, one uh, in San Antonio this year. They had a big win in Cleveland this year. Uh, so they have won big games on the road before, including this season. Having that game seven at home is nice, and it, it tends to kind of you, you feed off that energy uh, in a game seven. But for this team in particular, I don't really think home court mattered. I still would have picked them to beat the Jazz even if they didn't have home court. I just think it kind of it makes the series potentially quicker if they could get out you know, to a lead. Uh, but I just think that the Jazz do not match up well with the Clippers, and their strengths in some instances are the Clippers' strengths, and the Clippers are slightly better than them, I guess, at those things. We could get into that. But uh, yeah, for, for this series, I don't think it mattered. It would have mattered against Golden State, but you know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in their four matchups this season, the Clippers won three of them, each of those by double digits. As you mentioned, the matchup's kind of interesting in that it's pitting strength against strength, sort of, in that the Clippers are number four in the NBA in offensive efficiency this season. And the Jazz are the number three defense. What do you think is the biggest possible challenge for the Clippers that the Jazz present? Or like, what will they have the most difficulty handling? Uh, I, I think Utah's size is a challenge. The Clippers, they're big inside, but they're not very big on the perimeter. And if you are looking at Utah, you're basically saying, you know, with their starters and their bench, their rotation is basically like 6'4 and above. And all those guys are big body, long arms, like athletic. So I, I do think that the Jazz can give the, the Clippers some problems on the perimeter. Uh, I do think if they slow it down, I know the Clippers play relatively slow, but they don't play as slow as the Jazz. And I think the Jazz, that's going to be part of their MO is, is to sort of play similar to how the Memphis Grizzlies play when they play the Clippers, which is really just slow the game down, muck it up, and use your, your size and kind of toughness um, to, to win that paint battle, control the glass, and make it a very low-scoring, ugly game. I, I think if, if they can do that, then I think this is definitely a six- or seven-game series, and, and who knows, maybe the Jazz even win. I, I do think another interesting thing is, you know, if the Jazz go a lot with Joe Johnson at uh, power forward, I think that's going to be an interesting thing because Joe Johnson uh, is massive. And, you know, people, he's a wing, but he's a legitimate like 6'7, 6'8, 235, 240. So I actually think he can match up decently well with Blake. Uh, I think Blake, Blake should still be able to, to score on him, but Joe Johnson can hold his own. And then offensively, he presents a challenge just because. He is mobile, and he could shoot threes. So I could definitely see the Jazz rolling with Joe Johnson potentially at the four in crucial moments and then forcing the Clippers to either adjust by, by putting someone else on him and then maybe going with one big, or you're throwing Blake out there and just hoping that you know he can, he can guard him on the perimeter. Hold on, there's a train. Sorry. <laughs> We're like literally right under a train station, metro rail thing. Yeah, so I, I think that's... Those are going to be two interesting things to, to see kind of how the, the Jazz size and length bothers the Clippers and if they're kind of able to kind of control and manipulate the pace to their favor. Yeah, I think in that regard, George Hill is an interesting X factor for the Jazz. As you mentioned, great size at his position. He dealt with a lot of injuries this season that limited his play. And when the Jazz faced the Clippers, the Clippers were able to limit him. Are the Clippers going to stick with the same plan against George Hill, whatever that was? And how can Hill affect the game for Chris Paul, too? 
Well, I, I think that speaks to to Chris Paul's brilliance and why I think he's going to be, you know, on the all defensive first team probably this season. Uh, you know, Chris Paul is just he's a he's a bulldog. He's a really good defender. He knows how to read pick and roll coverages. He knows guys' strengths and weaknesses. He's very good off the ball. Like he's just a really good defender. And I think I, I know George Hill's been banged up all season, and I think a couple of the matchups he was banged up. So maybe those numbers are, are slightly deflated. But I, I do think it's you know George Hill in some ways is like a mini Chris Paul, where you know he is a slower, deliberate type of guy who, who's all about sort of like executing and. He's not really an, an on-the-fly kind of freestyler type point guard like you know like a, a Westbrook or something like that. So I, I do think Chris Paul kind of knows that and he can kind of adjust to that. But I think defensively, I mean, look, George Hill is six three, six four. He he does have long limbs. Uh, I, I do think he could actually bother Chris Paul a lot. Um, and and something that I mean, I think he could bother him in passing lanes, out of pick and rolls and stuff. So I, I do think it's going to be interesting to see. First off, how healthy George Hill actually is, which is still a question mark, but, you know, sort of how he can adapt to how Chris Paul plays and sort of, you know, make adjustments against him in, in a seven-game series. So I'm, I'm fascinated by that. But I, I agree with you. I think George Hill is going to be really big. I do not think he's he's fully healthy uh, from everything I understand. And I, I do think that factors into to my decision as well because I think if, he, if the Jazz were fully healthy – I'd probably say this goes seven, but um, from my understanding, they're not. And I think especially with a guy like George Hill, how important he is to them. If he's not 100%, I think that definitely swings a, a game or two. I'm really looking forward to the Rudy Gobert-DeAndre Jordan playoff matchup. And I expect a lot of blocks and lobs from each of them. Do you think there's <laughs> a, a big impact if one significantly outplays the other? And... How can DJ slow down Gobert, whose offense seems to have significantly improved since last season? Yeah, I, I think that that's going to be a huge matchup. Um, you know, literally. Uh, I, I mean, it's a matchup that DeAndre has tended to do well in. But I, I think this season you saw with the rise of Gobert, uh, I think we would probably all agree they're about equal or Rudy's probably a little bit better. Um, and I, I think DJ kind of knows that per, that perception shift and has kind of been aware of that in the matchups. But with that, I mean, Rudy's just so big. You know, I, I think he's probably the second most important player for them, obviously behind Gordon Hayward. So I, I think that matchup is going to be really important. Uh, I know part of the Clippers' game plan has been to try and get him in foul trouble, and they've been successful with it. But... I think that's going to be an interesting thing is, is how, you know, the refs call certain things in the playoffs and just how, how tight certain games are. Because if Rudy Colbert can, can get away with stuff and stay on the floor, that's a massive advantage for the Jazz. But, it, you know, if he gets in early foul trouble, obviously, then, you know, now you're, you're downsizing and, and sort of going with, with Favors or, or Dia or Withy or whoever. So I think that's going to be... The, you know, arguably the most important matchup of the series. I'd, I'd probably say like how Luke does on Gordon Hayward will determine how short of a series it is. But uh, I think that's a fascinating series because both guys are are pretty similar. Uh, you know, just with their with their offensive skill sets and roles, uh, the, their defensive sort of game plan. Like both guys are, are massive, but they're they're both mobile and athletic, and they kind of play the pick and roll and, and sort of rim protection differently than, than most bigs do. So I think that's going to be fascinating to see which one, you know, how personally both guys take the matchup. Um, you know, we're not going to know the awards. So if Rudy won defensive player of the year, made like the all defensive team over DeAndre, I think maybe that adds some extra motivation. But, uh, but yeah, I, I'm fascinated by that. And I think that that's going to be probably the most fun matchup to watch in the series. Yeah, I think so too. Fighting through key injuries to Blake Griffin and Chris Paul this year, the Clippers are finally pretty healthy. I mean, almost entirely healthy, except for Austin Rivers. But it's really important that they have, obviously, Paul and Griffin back. They went 8-13 and 13 without Chris and 11-10, and 10, so basically 500 without Blake. I think it's also important for the minutes staggering that Doc Rivers likes to employ 
since the bench has been struggling lately with bringing a key starter back early. So the Blake Griffin, Chris Paul minute staggering in particular, do you expect that to continue in the playoffs? And what is gained and lost by that stagger? That, that's a great question. I think it will. I don't know how much you guys have been watching of the, the Clippers lately, but the last like five, six, seven games, Doc, uh, kind of since when Austin went out, but I, I think it's also been, you know, another in a large part for playoff preparation. He has been actually staggering more, and he's been keeping Blake or DJ uh, with the second unit and then kind of putting Chris in earlier in the second quarter than he would. So he's actually been playing some, some interesting lineups where you have Chris and Blake and then three bench guys. So it's a fascinating thing. Uh, I think this is, this is really uh, an interesting philosophical debate because you've seen this now with the Clippers the last few years. You saw it with OKC, with Russ and KD, uh, where you, know, you have this question of, are you better off playing you know, 34, 36 minutes with your two studs together where you're, you're maximizing it. You're, you know, you're maybe plus 12 plus 14 points per hundred possessions with those two on the court together. So do you, do you roll with that and kind of maximize that and then just kind of hope to tread water with your bench? Or do you kind of split that up and maybe say, okay, they're going to play like 20 minutes together and then they're each going to play another 12 or, or so separately with the bench and, and kind of hope that those lineups are like a plus three or plus five or whatever. So I don't really know. I, I personally subscribe to the theory that I think you should stagger. I think, uh, you know, the reason why the Clippers blew that 18 point lead to the Kings was because their bench can't play defense and is a very inconsistent offensively. Uh, and I, I just, I've just seen them in particular blow, you know, the, the starters will get a 12 point lead and by the time they check back in with four minutes left in the second quarter, they're down six. And you're just like, what the hell happened? So I think with the Clippers, look, like in the playoffs, these guys play a lot more minutes. So I, I fully expect DJ and Chris and Blake to be in the 37, 38 minute range. So you're really only going to have like 10 minutes a night where those guys are off the court. But I, I do think it's imperative that Doc does stagger, keeps one of the... Uh, you, you know, the Clippers have three of those guys. Uh, OKC only had two. You, you should have one of those three on the court at all times. So whether you have to take Blake out a little earlier and, and you know, put someone else in for him, like, I, I don't know how you how you necessarily divvy that up. But one of those three players should be on the court at all times. I think it's really important for this team. Uh, I don't think, you know, especially against the Warriors, like, you can't have a bad possession against the Warriors. You can't have a bad two-minute stretch against the Warriors. You have a bad two-minute stretch, that's an 8-0 run, that's a 10-0 run that kind of just puts you in a hole that you're not going to get out of. So I, I think especially going into that series, if they do advance past the Jazz, like the Clippers are going to have to figure out some... Like They're not going to be able to play Jamal Crawford and Austin Rivers that many minutes together, if at all, against the Warriors. Like That is just death against that team. And you know, especially if they're going... You know, the Warriors stagger, they go some, you know, a lot of times with like KD and Clay. Uh, in the beginning of the second quarter, like if you're putting Austin Rivers and Jamal Crawford against KD and Clay, like good luck, you know, uh, that's, that's going to be ugly. So I, I do think the Clippers will stagger more. I, I don't know how much more. Um, I don't know if Doc is just tweaking because Austin's out. Like that's certainly a possibility. But I, I do think in general, uh, it seems like he, he does kind of stagger more in the playoffs a little bit. But even if you're rolling with like five minutes a half with your bench, like, that could be bad against the wrong team. The bench was playing extremely well early in the season. Spates, Felton, and Austin Rivers were especially huge early on. But thankfully now Jamal Crawford has really picked it up and looked very sharp. So that's he's been the savior of the bench lately, and they're going to need him. But to go to the, the Clippers' defense, they were also amazing early on. They led the league in efficiency a little bit past the first month, but as the season wore on, the defense really struggled. Is there any particular roadmap for them rediscovering the early season magic on that end? Or do you think that it'll be enough for the Clippers to just be mediocre defensively when you also have such an electric and efficient offense? Well, 
it, it, it's weird because when I, you know, watching them during that stretch, you didn't really sense that they were the best defense. Um, and they, they, they never really looked it. But obviously, that, that's what the numbers said. I think some of that was a little bit fluky. I think teams kind of shot worse from three against them during that stretch. And they forced more turnovers and stuff like that, which I, I guess ultimately wasn't sustainable. But I think the interesting thing is like this, it's weird because the pieces are there, right? Because, you know, Chris Paul is a perennial all in, you know, all in D guy. DeAndre Jordan has finished uh, you know, top three in defensive player of the year a, a couple times now and, you know, might be an all defense guy this year. Uh, Luke, Luke Mute does not get enough love for how good he is defensively. Like he's legitimately one of the, the best wing defenders in the league. So you kind of have a key guy at, at each position you would want. Uh, you know, Austin Rivers, I think, is overhyped or overrated defensively, but he he's become a solid defender. Like, so you have multiple guys in your rotation that that are sort of like good to really good defensively. So they have the pieces, but they also have a lot of guys that are bad defensively. Um, you know, Jamal Crawford obviously is infamously a, a terrible defender. Uh, Blake Griffin is is about average. JJ's you know average. Um, Raymond's at so I think they have the pieces I just think their their issues are they don't really again they, they don't have a lot of length on the perimeter so they've been lit up by small forwards like KD always lights them up um, Le- LeBron lights them up uh, Carmelo lights them up like all these guys light them up and it, you know you could blame Luke but I don't really think it's Luke's fault I, I think it's kind of <laughs> everybody else like I, I think Doc needs to kind of chill out with the putting Austin Rivers on small forwards. I, I don't think that's worked this season. Uh, but I, I think this team's passable. I think there's a train coming. Hold on. Uh, I apologize. Um, I, I think they'll be fine. Like you said, I, I think their offense is good enough to make up for their defense. They've actually been a top 10 defense uh, the last three years, you know, excluding this year. So I think they, they have that framework there with, with, you know, a lot of the same six or seven pieces. I just think it's about consistency. Uh, I, I do think, you know, injuries decimated this team. Uh, I think this is a team that when they're clicking offensively, they play much better defense. They just happen to be one of those teams. When they're not playing as well offensively, um, I think they just don't, you know, they don't defend as well, which isn't the case with every team, but I think it's the case with this team. But again, like you pointed out earlier in, in this podcast, like Chris missed the 20 games, Blake missed 20 games. I think that really hurts. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're playing now bench guys 30, 35 minutes a night that, that probably shouldn't be playing that much. And uh, I, I just think that this team, if healthy over the course of a season, I think they're probably three, four, maybe even five spots higher in the defensive rankings. And I think maybe we're having a different conversation right now. Jovan, I know we're pushing up against your time constraint. So we'll just have two quick questions and then we'll let you go. Earlier in this episode, you gave the Clippers at most a 10% chance of an upset in a potential second round series against the Warriors. Looking at the season series, Golden State swept the Clippers 4-0, but I think that difference might be a little bit overstated just because the Clippers didn't face the Warriors at full strength much this season. Chris Paul missed three of those four games. Do you think there's really as big of a gap between the two teams, Golden State and Los Angeles, as it seemed in the public perception? No. Uh, I, I would say I don't think so. And again, as we also talked about earlier, like expectations, uh, I, I think the Clippers' ex- own expectations this season kind of worked against them because I think you know, a, lo- a lot of people pick them as the second best team in the West, as the biggest challenger to the Warriors. And they start the season 14 and two. And then that kind of validated a lot of those predictions. And it's like, okay, well, this team, you know, now they're ready. They're going to win 60 games. They're going to challenge the Warriors for the one seed, like yada, yada. And then obviously the, the, the wheels fell off the cart, so to speak. And they had that terrible middle stretch of the season where they're basically a 500 team. And then, obviously, they got destroyed by the Warriors multiple times, and that kind of altered that perception. But I do think they're much closer to to that team um, from the beginning of the season than, than people realize. 
as we've kind of seen the last three weeks of the season when they, you know, they just went like nine and two or whatever. The matchup uh, again, it goes like I said with the with the Jazz. The issue with the Warriors is they have such a big, you know, they're so big on the perimeter and they have so many wing guys that I really think that bothers the Clippers. Like the Clippers, you know, Chris Paul. Chris, it's funny. Chris Paul guarded, you know, uh, Kevin Durant in in the OKC series for like a quarter and kind of shut him down. But you can't ask Chris Paul to do that, you know, for a seven game series. Uh, but you just look at all the matchups. Like Clay Thompson's three inches bigger than JJ Redick. You know, Steph Curry's three inches bigger than Chris Paul. Kevin Durant's three inches bigger than Luke Mbamute. Like Blake, Blake's bigger than Draymond, but Draymond might be you know stronger than him or as strong as him. Um, and you just then you go to the bench like Iguodala is bigger than Austin Rivers and Jamal Crawford. Like Sean Livingston's bigger, much bigger than Raymond Felton. And it's not only just about simply about size and length, but I think the Warriors are clearly a team that knows how to use their size and length, especially defensively. And I think the the thing that gets it's fascinating in the, in the Clippers Warriors series is you know I think people look at like the three point bombs and. And the Warriors running up the score, and they're like, wow, the Clippers can't really defend the Warriors. When I don't even necessarily think that's the case, I actually think the Clippers can't score on the Warriors. Like, if you watch their offense possessions, starters or starters, the Clippers are, are, you know, making in some cases one or two passes and then just like rushing up a shot, especially an Oracle. Um, so I, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how the Clippers, if they do play the Warriors, kind of figure out their offense because they haven't been able to figure it out against the Warriors thus far. Um, and, you know, you just throw Kevin Durant in the mix. Now you have another seven-footer on the floor uh, who's clogging up the paint. Like, he, he's really bothered Blake with his, with his help side and and uh, just, you know, help, helping when Blake's driving or, or rolling down the lane and stuff like that. Uh, Kevin Durant has really bothered him in the four matchups. So, look... From following the team so closely, I, I might have you know red and blue tinted glasses. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, um, you know, especially if I pick end up picking them over the Jazz in five. I, I know not a lot of people are going to have that pick, but I am realistic with the Warriors situation, and I, I would say uh, I'd probably, if that series were to happen tomorrow, I would probably predict it in five for the Warriors, just out of a courtesy for the Clippers. Say you know they get either Game Three or Game Four. Uh, at Staples Center, but it really wouldn't surprise me if that was a sweep. I promise we'll get you out of here really fast. I know you have a date with Brandon Ingram, but I just want to <laughs> ask you just about Paul Pierce. Doc Rivers has been ramping up his minutes lately. Obviously, Paul Pierce's final season. Realistically, could there be anything left in the tank for a clutch situation, maybe in the playoffs? <laughs> I'm going to burst the bubble of some Clipper fans here. I'm going to say no. I'm personally not on the uh paul pierce bandwagon i know some guys have talked themselves into it but uh he, he's had a couple moments this season where he's been productive and, and made shots but i mean look like last year he was terrible and it was kind of clear he was done and you know he probably shouldn't play another year he chose to play another year and i would say he's been better than he was last year but a lot of his minutes have come against second units and, and in garbage time situations and I just don't really put much stock in that. Look, like I think they're going to give him a chance, like you said. Like I definitely think he's going to play eight to ten minutes in in a couple games at least. But I really don't like that matchup, especially if he's going up against Joe Johnson, who I just think is more spry and kind of mobile than Pierce is at this point in his career. So I mean, he really is a power forward now. Like there, you know, that was Doc's mistake last year, which is hilarious. Was you know, Pierce had switched to small ball power forward for the past two years with Brooklyn and then with Washington. And then Doc tried playing him at the three and it was just laughable because he was getting torched defensively. Like he, you know, he can't guard threes. He can really only guard big men. And now a lot of teams are playing threes at the four. So he can't really guard those guys. Uh, so I think he could be used in, in spot matchups. It wouldn't surprise me if he put him on the court for like a game winning shot potentially or something. But I'm not buying that sort of hype of, you know, he's going to, we've seen this, like yeah. the Clippers have had Hidu Turkoglu and Steven Jackson and, you know, a bunch of different washed up veterans that obviously Paul Pierce is a much better player for Jameson. his career than any of those guys. But 
Yeah, yeah like those. It, it's 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 cute for three minutes in, in a blowout, but uh, when, yeah. when you're talking about playoffs and stakes, I, I will thought, say though, West John West Johnson has not done himself any favors this year. He's had a pretty bad year. So if the alternative is West Johnson, who knows? Maybe Paul Pierce gets more minutes. I just thought I'd ask because he's a future Hall of Famer about to retire. But thanks for your honesty about the truth. And it was just fascinating <laughs> listening to you talk about the Clippers. It's always great to see a fellow Trojan succeeding. You're doing great stuff at ESPN. So thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it, guys. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more shit. Welcome back. We just had an in-depth discussion about the Clippers with ESPN's Jovan Buha, and we're going to expand on some of those topics in this second segment. First, I want to just talk about that first round series that's going to start this weekend between the Clippers and the Jazz, and talk a little bit more about how they match up. Jovan said he's likely going to pick the Clippers in five. What's your prediction, Aaron? I'm going with the Clippers in six, and that's just out of respect for how strong of a team this Utah Jazz is. They're three in defense. They're just elite defensively, and they're anchored by Rudy Gobert. It all just starts with him. And I know that during the year, the Jazz lost three of four, and all those, as you mentioned, were by double digits. But I just think that there'll be a couple times where the Clippers let their foot off the gas pedal, so to speak. And the Jazz are just too talented for the Clippers to be able to get away with that. That said, I think it's beneficial that they have home court advantage. I don't think it helps a ton, given that the Clippers are the better team regardless. So I agree with Yovan on that point. But I wouldn't be surprised if the series does go five. So my official prediction is six, but the Clippers are rolling right now. And... That could happen. I also expect the Jazz to fall in six games to the Clippers. I think Gordon Hayward is a big X factor here for the Jazz. He averaged almost 22 points per game this season. And if he gets hot, I mean, the Jazz really have a chance of even winning this series. I, I wouldn't be shocked if they did. But I think Clippers in six. The, the Clippers just just have too much leadership from Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, and J.J. Redick is another leader on this team. I just think the Clippers will win, but Gobert and Hayward, those are two great players that they're going to build around. I, I want to add something quickly. I don't buy into the narrative stuff that much usually, but here I'm going to indulge myself a little bit and say that I think sheer willpower shouldn't be underestimated here. If the Clippers lost in the first round, it would be an unmitigated disaster and the whole core could be blown up. I don't think that the guys on that team will allow that to happen. So even if Utah was more talented and they're not, I don't envision that happening. Yeah, I mean, for both of these two teams, their regular seasons were ravaged with injuries. The Jazz are still somewhat dealing with that. George Hill doesn't seem... 100% healthy, and he hasn't been for the whole season. So that's something to keep an eye on. Joshua, as you pointed out, Gordon Hayward has elevated his game to star to superstar type levels, but he still has very stark differences in his win-loss splits for the Jazz. So as he goes, the Jazz go. So it should be an interesting matchup. I, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that the Clippers are a better team, especially with the health situation that the Jazz have, but it should be an exciting one to look at. One interesting matchup, as we mentioned previously on the show with Jovan, is the matchup between Rudy Gobert and DeAndre Jordan, both huge guys, great at rim running, great at defense. How do you assess that matchup and the excitement around it? Like I said in the interview, I think it's going to be a great matchup in the series. And I'm really looking forward to watching them battle. This season, I've seen Rudy Gobert make tremendous strides on the offensive end. And it's going to be interesting to see DeAndre Jordan slow him down or at least try. The last Jazz Clippers game I watched, DJ was pretty effective in slowing down Rudy. But it it wasn't that Gobert 
really seemed that rattled by Jordan's presence. It was more that Quinn Snyder's game plan wasn't really centered on Gobert as much as it normally is. So they knew ahead of time that it wouldn't have been a prudent strategy for Gobert to get as many offensive touches with DeAndre Jordan in the paint there. Yeah, I can't say how excited I am about that head-to-head matchup. Two of the most athletic bigs in the NBA. And like you said, Lauren, both great rim runners and rim protectors. There are going to be tons of lobs. It's going to be really fun. Yovan mentioned about defensive player of the year potential, and Rudy Gobert definitely could get the nod for that. Regardless, DeAndre Jordan's no slouch defensively either, even though Gobert is clearly better on that end. So I think basically that it's kind of a wash, that even though they're both so talented and fun to watch, it'll affect the series. I don't think it'll turn it for either team, just because when they play against each other, they both put up similar numbers. I don't think one will go crazy and one will just become silent. So that's how I see it. That um, It's not really a game changer, that matchup, but one of the best that we've seen in a while. Yeah, I agree with both of you. As you noted, Joshua, Rudy Gobert has made immense strides in his offensive game this season. But in a sense, he still does rely on the other members of the Jazz to get him involved offensively. It's not like he's taking the strides such that he can create his own offense yet. One dimension that he's improved drastically is his free throw shooting to the point where it's not a liability anymore. So that's something to watch as well. The same can't be said for Jordan. He has improved at times and overall, right, Aaron? Yeah, he's improved, but But he's still a liability. He's a liability. He was, I think, around 50%, the low 50s, but it dipped toward the end of the year, and he finished at 48.2, whereas he was 39 or 40% in recent. Right, and Gobert has improved to the high 60s in that respect, so that's a great plus for the Jazz in terms of being able to keep him on the floor in the fourth quarter. Looking forward now to the potential second-round matchup between the Clippers and Warriors. Jovan gave the Clippers a 10% chance against the Warriors. I don't think pretty much any team in the league would be favored in that matchup, obviously, but I think both of you are more bullish on the Clippers, right? Yeah, I think that they have a 30 or so percent chance of winning, and Before I get some angry tweets, I understand that that's a a very high number. And I think conventional wisdom might have it at closer to like 5% or what Yovan said. I think that that's overlooking the potential talent of these Clippers. Only one game head-to-head did Chris Paul suit up in. And yeah, they got blown out in some of them. But they were also in some of those games. And it looked more of like a mental thing they couldn't get past. I mean, yes, the Warriors are daunting physically and mentally, but so much is at stake this season that I think it's it's not unreasonable to say that the Clippers have more of a legitimate shot at pulling the upset. And that has a lot to do with also the Warriors' vulnerabilities. They're still reacclimating with Kevin Durant coming back. I know they did really well with him off the court and injured, but there is uh, some level of adjustments that they have to make and also, their bench is a lot different than it was last postseason. Definitely, if they did match up in the semifinals, the Warriors would be the overwhelming favorites. And you can call me a homer if you want, but I'm going to say that the Clippers have a decent shot at upsetting them. I actually came up with a similar figure of 30% independently, and I'll tell you why. I do also realize that the Warriors will be the overwhelming favorite i think the the warriors are susceptible to prolonged cold spells and you could see that when durant was out curry and thompson both are very streaky and they shoot a lot of threes the clippers i think this iteration the way they're playing lately provided that their bench is holding fort reasonably well and that the the starters play big minutes. I don't think this Clippers team is easy to come back against if you fall into a big hole with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin playing smart and making good decisions out there. I also think that J.J. Redick is is capable of getting really hot. 
He's been shooting well lately. If Curry and Thompson are both cold for a few games, I really think the Clippers could win. Just to bounce off what you said and finish my response, the bench is going to be huge for the Clippers. We can't see dips in production from Felton and Spates as we've seen over the last couple months in the year because when those guys were playing well, the Clippers were just so difficult to beat. Right now, they're getting by because the starters are just producing at ridiculous levels. But in a series against a historically elite team like the Warriors, you need your bench clicking on all cylinders. I think that brings us to the staggering issue. Against the Warriors, when they can put at all times in the game two of the four of Curry, Thompson, Green, and Durant, the Clippers' depth, especially at guard, I think is still an issue that you have to worry about. It it was addressed a bit better this season than in previous seasons, such that it's not like a complete liability. And guys like Felton Spates, Austin Rivers, if he's healthy, do provide some positive, but they still will obviously be giving up a lot in that respect. Yeah, it's a good point that you bring up, Lauren, specifically about these Clippers bench players that they really need to keep up because this bench has really fallen off lately and Austin Rivers is injured. We don't know the extent of his availability for this series, but if he doesn't play, Jamal Crawford needs to continue his torrid play because they could get killed when when these starters come out. Even if there is a staggering situation with the minutes, assuming they get by the Jazz, which I know is presumptuous. Yeah, I'm glad you added that because we're talking about it like it's a certainty that they're in the second round. I like their chances, but it's definitely not a certainty. To close this show, I want to look back at that Jazz Clippers first round series. This is the first time the Jazz and the Clippers have matched up in the playoffs since 20 years ago to the year where the Jazz and Clippers played in the first round. The Jazz ended up sweeping the Clippers in that series and went on to win the Western Conference, and lose to the Bulls in the finals. Aaron and Joshua, you both have personal history with that matchup, right? Yeah, we were there. We were seven years old and at the game. Game three. Yeah, that was the only game in Los Angeles back then. It was best of five for the opening round. The Clippers finished 36 and 46 that year, so they barely squeaked in. Bill Fitch, legendary Celtics coach, was the Clippers coach then. Carl Malone averaged nearly 31 points per game over those three and over 11 rebounds. Just a great Utah Jazz team. But there were some close games, right, Joshua? Yeah, game two in Salt Lake City was only by six points. And I wouldn't say that it was close necessarily, but the one game in Los Angeles that we attended was by 12. And this Jazz team made the finals. And this Clippers team... They were 10 games under 500 in the regular season <laughs> and had no no Hall of Famers, no future Hall of Famers. So they'd have to wait a while after that to actually win a playoff game. The next eight postseasons didn't make the playoffs and 13 of the next 14. So this run that they're enjoying is unprecedented in Clippers history. They're making their sixth straight postseason appearance. Only the Spurs, Grizzlies, and Hawks have greater active runs right now of playoff berths. So Clippers fans enjoy it while it lasts. I don't know how much longer it will last. Lots of interesting names on that Clippers roster. Six Clippers averaged double figures in points over those three games against Utah. And Loy Vaught, the great rebounder, led the Clippers in scoring that series Tragically, two players who have passed away since, Malik Seeley and Lorenzen Wright, were two of the other double-figure scorers. Rodney Rogers, he's had tough times since he's retired. He was in a dirt bike accident and is paralyzed from the shoulder down. Brent Berry was also on that team and was a solid producer for them, now color commentator, obviously. And Derek Martin, southpaw point guard who went to UCLA, I don't know how, but he managed to play 13 seasons in the NBA at 5'11". Just a tenacious guy. He was a smart player, too. He didn't really make too many mistakes. I remember that, yeah, and and a good passer, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely serendipitous that on the 20th anniversary of that matchup, the Clippers and Jazz will see each other again in the playoffs. And I think that's where we'll close our show for today. Thank you for listening. If you're listening to us on Dash Radio, thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show.